you can eat however you want to eat. You don't have to align with some supposed veganism or vegetarianism. Like you can eat how your body needs to eat. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So let's transition over to um, some of I don't want to phrase this. So there was a number of things that we um, had kind of discussed talking about. And one of them is that you felt like when you were in um, the vegan and vegetarian spaces, there's a lot of propaganda and misinformation being pushed at you by like, not just like your neighbor, who's also a vegetarian, but like these big organizations who do wield a lot of power in those spaces. Um, What are some, are you, you don't have to like out the organization or anything, but what are some of the, um, specific like pieces of misinformation that since becoming better educated and gaining some experience, you've been like, that was not true. And I'm ashamed that I believed that. (laughs) I think the biggest two for me, I'll break it down into two things. And like, is dairy. Like I felt guilt for not being vegan enough or not being vegetarian, like not being vegan enough. Like I love cheese and I was made to feel terrible about consuming milk because like, these cows are permanently impregnated and like they're being stuck in these stalls all day with milkers on them. And like, they don't get to be with their babies and all these other things. Um, And now I know that dairy heifers are terrible mothers. Dairy bulls are incredibly dangerous. Heifers are terrible moms. Dairy cows aren't bred for maternal instinct at all like they're not going to be a great mom unless maybe they're jersey or there's something exceptional um but like that was all lies and then the other big thing like I said is like they're showing me picture of beef but it's a jersey or it's a Holstein and I'm like well that's not that and then the other thing is veal which is like a seven or six month old to one year old cow or not cow dairy steer most of the time, which I feel like there's a lot of misinformation and propaganda around that type of stuff. And then, and I still haven't really gotten to the bottom of this one, but like hatcheries apparently like grinding all their male birds up, which I don't think is true in the egg industry. I haven't done enough research, but like with our meat birds, we get males all the time. So, um, and when I've ordered layers and straight run, I get males. And it's it's a very hard thing to sex day old chicks. Like unless, unless like you know a lot about chickens and you've looked at, at a lot of chicken vents, like those are like the two biggest things about the milk and the egg industry. Um, and I think those are two really great, almost perfect foods that are affordable. Um, And I think a lot of my issue with the vegan vegetarian movement and propaganda is the elitism that comes along with it because not everybody, Um, I've lived in places where I've had to take multiple modes of transportation to get to a grocery store and like they don't take into account food deserts and um, not everything is available everywhere. I wanna go back to the second point you made about the veal because this is actually one that I, I see it's super, super common people that I know, um, that are vegetarian that don't eat specifically don't eat beef. Although I don't know, I'm going to, I'm going to come back to that. I'm just saying one of my friends who's vegetarian 
said she doesn't eat beef and I'm laughing. It's not funny that she really believes this. It's horrendous, but she said she wasn't eating beef because they put jalapeno juice in the cow's eyes and that's how they flavored their beef. And when I tell you she, I know when I tell you, she believed this, like with her whole heart, Josiah and I looked at each other. We started, we tried so hard not to laugh and we're like, and she's like, she's like getting upset because she's like, like, oh my God, I thought you were joking. I thought you were joking. And she's like, no, this is what really happened. And then she showed us a picture of this happening. It was so badly photoshopped. It was so badly photoshopped. And I'm like, babe, no. No, honey. Mm -mm. No. And I mean, like. But it's it's stuff like that. Like I have several friends that I've met via clubhouse and stuff and they have big cattle operations and a lot of them, several of them run feedlots and like, they still care. Like, I mean, they care just as much about their thousand head of cows as I do about my seven dumb Dexter cows that lose their babies. Like everybody gets sad when they lose a calf. Like, I don't know anybody who doesn't get upset about it. And it is very, very hard in online spaces because of the um, automatic like filtering that the algorithms do. And like, it, it's, it's really hard because like, thank God we have those because the horrendous things that we might actually see if we didn't have them are like atrocious. But then when you get into talking about stuff like livestock, it is incredibly, incredibly difficult to talk about the hard days and the harder parts of being a livestock producer when you can't talk about like the death of your animals because the death of the animal gets like filtered out but at the same time you're like okay well I don't want to see people talking about like murdering their spouse in detail you know what I mean so like I understand where like those filters come from but it makes it very very hard for people who are trying to talk in earnest about like their day-to-day life talk about the hard pieces of their day-to-day life online and yeah I think that that's something that is needed more but outside of spaces like clubhouse rooms that are designated for that or um if you get really really creative with language that you're using on stuff like Instagram yeah it can be really hard to have those conversations it can and I kind of for what it's worth good bad or indifferent like I try and show the good and the bad but I don't show the ugly um and like I talk like I mean I'm not gonna go into like gross detail about like when we lose an animal or just like I'll probably say RIP whoever and and it's tough like for me and it's tough being a mother and like having to deal like we had a bottle piglet and I won't go into the story for my son's privacy but like having to do that as a parent was one of the hardest things I've had to do like helping him through that situation um and it, it's hard, like, with with kids when you have to, like, explain, like, the finality of death, especially because, like, your kids are pretty young. They're 7 and 11, I think you said. So, like, especially when it's an animal that you care for very intimately since it was so small, because for people who have never cared for, like, any kind of bottle animal, it's, it's, a, it's an intimate process. You're spending a lot of time with these animals. Yeah. And... Um, yeah and that that stuff is hard I hope sometimes I'm like am I messing up my kids 
but I hope I, I'm giving them resiliency and um, a really understanding, good understanding of what it is to be a good steward of the land and be a good steward of animals and like how to care for something throughout its entire life and like treat it with the utmost respect throughout its entire life. And if it's a steer, it has two bad days. And if it's a heifer or a gilt, it maybe has one bad day, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, we just try our best to raise our animals like with the tools we have to the to the best of our abilities. Yeah. And you're also providing like specifically talking about kids because like, you know, I've had bottle animals die and it's sad, like it's sad every single time, right? But you're providing your kids like a, an incredibly like safe environment to learn and process grief. So like, I don't know if this is something you've like really thought of a lot about, but you're giving them this safe environment to process grief in a relatively low stakes way because you're dealing like you're dealing with grief but like at the end of the day like it was just a piglet it's not like yeah their grandparent right now like for right now I mean eventually that day will come but it it yeah. it's a low stakes um way for them to process grief and that was something that I was like actually really as an adult now not as a kid it wasn't great but like as an adult now looking back like I'm really grateful that like I had like pets that had to be, you know, put down or whatever it was so that I could deal with that grief, like in a, in a loving environment. And it wasn't like once I was an adult and like, I, it was grandparents and um, friends and stuff like that. I knew how to like appropriately process that. Yeah. I, I think it's a good, like, like you said, low stakes environment. And I think giving, learning those tools and resources and having resiliency and grit at a young age will benefit them is my hope is our hope um I don't think I've ever heard anyone who was like raised on a farm or a ranch say wow I'm really bummed I learned to process grief that way like it's always been like okay well yeah that happened like at a young age but it taught me that like I have this like circle of people I can rely on it like taught me that like life for me goes on even after death yeah Okay. I'm going to circle back to you. We're going to get back on, tra- back on track. <laughs> I'm like the worst. I take things off the rails all the time. No, this is good. I actually love when this happens because then we get to have all kinds of conversations that we weren't planning on having. It's fun. Um, okay. So veal. Yeah. The, that is the number one piece of outside of cows are bad for the environment. Um, that is the number one piece of like propaganda images that I see not as much now, but I used to see them a lot more. And it was always like a fresh, like eight week old calf that it was the photo of. And it says, is this what you want for dinner? And it was like something along those lines. And that is not the animals that we are consuming when we are talking about veal. An animal that is six months to a year old is, it's cow, like steers, they're massive. They're huge. Yeah, because I mean, I'm going to say they're a dairy breed nine times out of 10 that go into the veal. Um, And veal crates aren't a thing anymore, which is like a lot of information, misinformation. Even like, I'll talk to my dad about stuff and he'll be like, yeah, veal crates. I was like, no, dad, they don't do that anymore. Like, that's not a thing. I don't know what that is. Can you? Um, I think they used to keep them in like crates. I don't know if it's actually crates or more like dairy hutches. 
-hmm. you know how dairies keep their calves in hutches and that sort of thing is what I think it might be but um no like a six-month-old like Holstein steer I'm pretty sure it's huge like I've never been around one personally I've seen pictures of them but like full-size Holsteins and full-size like Holsteins are just big animals like and I think like you only need so many dairy bulls like we can't make them all bulls um so I think it's a great use of food I mean I think it's being resourceful I think it's being thrifty so I did just do like a quick Google search just so that way I could like give some people um, a little bit of context. So I found um, through Farm Credit of the Virginias, through um, extension from Penn State, like it's an extension from Penn State for like the growth that you should be expecting. Um, and it's about roughly 900 pounds for a 12 month old Holstein steer. So these are large animals that are, if they were beef animals would be very close to the end of their life cycle. So that's the size of my bull. My five-year-old bull is about 900 pounds. I'm guessing maybe a little less. That's a big animal. And so just to add like a little bit of context, like these aren't like the sweet, like fuzzy, snuggly babies that you are seeing out in pastures typically, they're the almost the size of the full grown cows. Yeah. Um, so that is, I think that is an important distinction to talk a little bit about. Can you talk a little bit more about like some of the guilt that you felt for not being vegan enough? Like what exactly does that mean? Like, and I would cheat or like, I just feel like it's a lot of the nineties diet culture got transferred to it as far as like not reading ingredients enough or like accidentally getting something into your food that was like had beef on it. Or like if I went to Burger King and got a veggie burger, it was cooked on the same grill as the hamburgers. So was that really vegetarian or was that vegan? Was there egg in that bun? Like all those kind of things. Um, and it can really, easily turn into um disordered eating and i'm not saying an eating disorder just like disordered eating like eating that isn't healthy that's like you're putting all these rules and restrictions on your food which like i've talked about previously like i'm very much like what what works for your body what food works for your body what food nourishes your soul like emotionally socially culturally like focus on those things rather than creating all these like tight rules around food that are restricting and that you, that aren't even like feasible to to maintain long term. Yeah, I feel like you're exactly right when you said a lot of like the diet rules from the 90s and early 2000s were just like copy pasted into um, vegan spaces and some vegetarian spaces too. Yeah, we like, I don't know us 90s girls and, and probably guys too I don't have that experience but like man they like messed us up on food yeah well I think about just like in my own lifetime all of the different things that were like so healthy when I was a kid and now they're just like you were putting what into your body like <laughs> like snack wells slim fast oh yeah yeah 
I think about that all the time. I actually think about that all the time because my mom did like slim fast diets whenever she wanted to like lose weight. And I remember, I remember drinking as a kid because I did like a chocolate milkshake. But then I'm like, I'm like, why would my mom let me have that? Oh, my mom would pack them for lunch for me. Yeah. Why were we allowed to do that? (laughs) And all those like terrible magazines at the checkout. First magazine. All the diet chips. (laughs) And where they would like have, take photos of like paparazzi shots of celebrities who look like hot, look way better than like most normal looking people look. And they're like, her butt sticks out so far. You're just like, now like looking back, I'm like horrified. And I'm like, she looks so cute though. Look at her little cute little swimmy. I think about that actually a lot in context to um, nudity. Because like back in the day, if you were like topless in a movie or whatever, you were like bad news bears. It was like a really big deal that you did like a topless scene. And now I'm like, there's girls being topless on Instagram every single day. Yeah. How how have the turntables have turned? Yeah. How have things have changed? And like, um, I mean, I don't buy it either way. I don't think there should be anything wrong if that happens through the course of like your specific job and everyone who's around is like a consenting adult to having that happen. Yeah. It's not my business. Um, I don't think it should say anything about your morals regardless. <laughs> yeah. But, um, okay. So the elitism is also a really big thing that I see going on um, because even, and not just in veganism, I see it in like, oh yeah, I eat meat, but it's only organic grass fed beef. And then you like, will look up like what, what they're talking about. And it's like $30 a pound. And I'm like, okay, well, when you're saying that's the only safe way to eat meat, it's first of all, it's not. But when you're touting, especially if you have influence, like if you're a celebrity or you're someone who does have an influence, that's dangerous to be spreading that information. And are those things better for you? Maybe, but probably not by like an amount that's truly noticeable. (laughs) And this is where, so like, I understand people have food sensitivities, like some of the soy and corn allergies, like yeah, it's probably better for you to eat grass-fed beef if you have a soy or corn allergy. Um, But do I think it's, like, the end of the world if you eat conventional beef? No, I don't. I mean, we do things a certain way, and I think that works for my context of my operation, and it might not work for your context of your operation, but I also, like, I want everybody to eat what they can afford to eat, and what works for them and what they can get in their area. Like something that's been important for our business this entire time has like, we understand we're not the cheapest. Like we're never gonna be. We've, what we feed, we feed um, organic rations to our grain fed animals. So chickens and pigs um, and turkeys and stuff. And that's expensive. And like, if we have a customer that's like, I can't afford that. I was like, well, let me do some calling around and see if I can get you a pig from somebody that does it conventional, or I can find you a kid with a 4-H animal. Like, cause there's a bunch of kids that end up with 4-H animals and FFA kids that end up with animals that don't make weight or something terrible happens. And like, they have to be processed earlier than expected. Like I'm like, that has been a key component of our business is like, 
you need food, we'll help you find it at a price you can afford. Like, I'm not going to shame you for that. Yeah. And I like that you bring up, like, you know, that like your price point isn't for everybody. And, and I like, obviously I'm not saying that like the way you guys do things is wrong or bad. I hope that's, that's clear. No, it's clear. Okay. (laughs) Um, it, it is, I feel like important. And then the fact that you're like, Oh, but you know what, let me see if I know somebody who does have something that's, um, I feel like that's also really helpful. And then, um, food deserts is like a whole other, that's like a whole other podcast series. Yeah. Um, I was talking Follow to you do it. <laughs> I was talking to somebody specifically about um, the food deserts that are in parts of Louisiana where like it didn't used to be, but when Hurricane Katrina came, it wiped out like a, most of the infrastructure in a lot of those areas. And like for people who don't know, um, Louisiana is an incredibly, incredibly poor state. So they, a lot of the communities didn't have the money to rebuild the homes, rebuild the grocery stores, rebuild the communities. But like, you also don't have the money to like not live there anymore. So you're stuck. And now the closest grocery store is like 40 miles away. I mean, where I live, I have to, if we're going to call Dollar General a grocery store, then sure, we have a grocery store, but I have to drive to our county seat, which is Chandler, or to the next big town, which is Edmond. Like, I don't have a local grocery store. Um, there's a farm-to-table restaurant. I can get, like, good milk and eggs if I am in a pinch. Um, and there's a farmer's market about 15 minutes away that we sell at. Um, but other than that, like I have to drive 35 minutes to go to a grocery store. Um, and I'm don't even live that far out there, like comparatively. So there's food deserts in rural America, which just like blows my mind. Yeah. Um, well, there is technically, I, I do not live in a food desert just to be clear. I live 30 miles north of Austin. We have a local grocery store out here, but if I was less, had less income to spend on food than I do, I wouldn't be able to afford to shop there because it's a, it's a typical like small town, like grocery store. The prices are almost double what I can get 20 miles down the road. If I didn't have a way to go 20 miles down the road, well, okay, yeah. now I can afford to get one loaf of bread and that's it. And that sucks. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so when I met my husband, he was in DC and I was in Baltimore and I lived in Baltimore for five years and half that time I didn't have a car. I would take a a bus or the light rail to get to either Trader Joe's or Whole Foods because those are the only two places I could get vegetarian food. Um, I would drive, I would take a bus or the light rail there. I'd have to carry dog food back and my groceries. And like, that's a lot. Like there was... It wasn't even an Aldi. It was a save a lot near us, which I wasn't going to be able to find anything that like fit my dietary needs there. So I couldn't shop there. And that's why a lot of people in food deserts rely on pre-made food and stuff like that. I could go, I could rant for so long about how it is like, I know they're in rural America, at least I don't want to say that makes reasonable sense to me, but like, I understand why your farm in the middle of nowhere might be 45 minutes from the closest grocery store. That makes sense. Why, yeah. if someone lives in the dead middle of a city, why can't they get groceries? Why can't they have a walkable grocery store? Well, so Baltimore used to have this really cool thing. 
they're called Arabbers, or they were called Arabbers, and they were fruit men that had carts drawn by horses, and they would go through the um, neighborhoods in Baltimore. They have since gotten rid of all of them because the city was supposed to build them stables, and then they charged all of the Arabbers with, um, like, there's a whole deal. The Arabbers didn't have it. It's a it's a rabbit hole, but it's a really cool cultural thing where like people would get vegetables because they'd have this guy that'd go around the whole city. Like he'd say like, they'd have songs and stuff that they'd sing to get people out of their houses. I mean, this happened, they still had a robbers when I lived in Baltimore and that was 2010, 11-ish. Um, but the ways that we had to get food to those places, like we are like too good for them now, but um, I do think like grocery delivery and stuff is probably helpful for like food deserts and stuff. Um, but it's tough if you don't have a car because you can only get so much that you can carry back. Have you seen, there's this guy on TikTok that rides like his bicycle or his scooter to the grocery store and it will be just like, it's random people in the parking lot are like recording him as he like loads it up and it's incredible the amount of stuff he gets on his bicycle. Yeah, I was not good at that. I'd have, I mean, dog, bringing back enough dog food for my dog was like a challenge at itself. Okay, is there um, anything else you wanted to touch on before I ask my last couple of questions? Um, I feel like I'm missing something, but I don't know what it is. And hopefully I'll answer it in those next couple of questions. Okay, um, I feel like we covered... Um, everything we really wanted to touch on if there's something else that you think of that you're like no wait i actually really want to talk about this let me know we'll do another zoom call and i'll find a spot to insert it into um an episode but before i get into my last couple of questions i just want to uh, throw yes. out like obvious like the whole point of the show is to bring people who don't necessarily know anything about the people that i'm interviewing or the world that they come from so that way they can learn some something yeah. from before. So I made like a little list of some of the um, other guests that I've had that have talked about their specific area of expertise. So like, if you want to know um, more about beef, I've had um, Andrea. Um, I've had Andrea on, she's been on a couple times, but specifically she talks a lot about um, feedlots in a more recent episode is episode mm -hmm. 87. I had um, Ethan on, he also has a feedlot. He's like fifth generation in Iowa. Um, he was episode 55. Dairy, actually. So tomorrow I have an episode um, with Rachel coming out. She's a um, third generation dairy woman. So it'll be two episodes back to back to come out immediately before this one. I talk about um, specifically rodeo and the care of the rodeo stock. Um, I talk about with Courtney Dehoff, who owns a bucking bowl. We talked, um, I talked with her in episode 42 and 43. And then lastly, um, I want to talk about, bring up um, the hunting episodes. I talked to someone who is a um, hunting outfitter in Montana and Wyoming. And that was episode 73 and 74. So if listeners, if you have questions about those specific things, if I listed something that sounds like you're like, Oh, I actually would like to know more about that. Those are the episodes. If um, you're listening and you want to come on and talk about any of those things, you can reach out to me via DM email, et cetera. That's what Julia did. This has been a wonderful conversation for us to have. So, um, if someone came to you tomorrow and said, hey, um, I I listened to your podcast episode or I, I'm listening and I found your social media and I'm 
vegetarian, but I'm interested in trying meat, what's a safe place for me to start? Um, well, I'd say, what is your body telling you you need? Like, what are you craving? Like, what do you, like, are you just, like, dying for a cheeseburger? Do you want a big old salty steak? Like, what is it that your body's, like, what are you hearing? Because, like, my body would tell me stuff. Like, I would get hankerings for things that weren't aligning with vegetarianism or veganism. Um, I would just, like, listen to your body. And, I mean, try and find a local farmer or rancher to buy directly from. And figure out what you like. And I think, I didn't really get to touch on this, but I'm going to insert it in here. Um, for me, texture was a huge thing with meat and like eating meat off the bone is something like I had issues with, which is why I feel like a lot of people like processed foods. But once I got past that, for the most part, I still have ch problem with chicken on the bone. Um, things started to open up and just learning how to cook like one or two things really well. And you don't have to meet like you can be a flexitarian. You can eat what, however you want to eat. You don't have to align with some supposed veganism or vegetarianism. Like you can eat how your body needs to eat and to fuel your body successfully. Wonderful. I feel like, I feel like there's a lot of people, regardless of what their current um, diet is that are restricting themselves in some ways because they think there's a specific way they have to eat. So I feel like that's that's going to be good for them to hear. Yeah, no, I, I'm all about like listening to your body, um, do food sensitivity testing. If you have like problems and try a whole 30 and try an elimination diet and, you know, see how you feel. And those things are only temporary. That's not how you need to eat for the rest of your life is the other thing. You need to figure out your food freedom what works for your body. Um, and then of everything you've done in your whole life, what are you most proud of? That's hard. Starting this business with my husband and, you know, having the privilege to stay at home with my kids and do the day-to-day -day stuff with them and, um, you know, start a business with my husband. This has been really cool. I mean, it's been really hard. But it's probably the coolest thing I've done is have the kids and grow a business and start a farm with my husband. Um, and I think it's a unique experience for us being first generation and just the growing pains that come with that. But um, this has been pretty cool. I'm pretty proud of what we've done. It sounds really cool. <laughs> um, and then very last thing, if someone wants to follow along on your um, journey on social media, where can they find you? You can find me on Instagram, Facebook, and I've got, I'm an elder millennial. I don't have a TikTok, talk, sorry. Um, and I've got a blog. And yeah, you can email me. It's on our website, thehumblehivehomestead.com. And that's my name throughout all social media. Thank you so much for listening today. If you enjoyed the episode, please feel free to connect with me on social media. It's at Ranch Collective Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And subscribe to the podcast to get new episodes as soon as they're released. See you next week.